Hello and welcome to the AMP podcast, the show where we discuss the latest trends, research and insights in the entertainment industry. My name's Alice Thorpe. I'm a senior analyst here at Ampere Analysis and I will be your host for today. So on today's show, I'll be talking to two of my colleagues at Ampere who have both been looking in different ways at how consumer engagement with content is changing and how providers can adapt to cater to audience demand. First, we'll be hearing from Serena Moore about a report she recently produced alongside our colleague Neil Anderson, looking in detail at the future of European public service broadcasters. Also joining us this week, we have Minal Moda, who will be taking us through her recent report, looking at changing audience viewing behaviours and the opportunities they are creating in the aggregation space. So, Serena Minal, welcome to the show. Serena, I'd like to start with you because I think your report, looking at the future of European PSBs, gives us some concrete examples of challenges which are being faced in different ways across the sector. So firstly, can you set the scene for us? How do you see the role of public service broadcasters in Europe currently? Yeah, obviously, it's quite difficult to summarise this role in just a few minutes. But perhaps to start with, we can emphasise the central idea of these broadcasters' public remit. So they are meant to be funded, or at least more or less directly funded by the public, aimed at the public, and be accountable in some way or another to the public. And so. These public service broadcasters play a very important role in society. For instance, there's the informational role. They're meant to inform the public about what's happening in their world. They're accountable for the level of accuracy and impartiality they're striving for in their news content, for example. They're also meant to provide free access to quality content that is representative of this public in all its diversity. Beyond this, the leading PSBs in um, Western Europe play a central role in their local TV production industry. So they've supported the development and growth of very strong national production industries. In Europe's big five market, over 60% of all commissions come from public service broadcasters. And in terms of their investments in original content, just accounting for the top six public service broadcasters, together they invest nearly five billion a year in original content. So this, because there's a level of stability in the funding for these PSBs is also meant that against the backdrop of economic uncertainty and challenges, it has provided a level of resilience and stability in the local production industry in Europe. And this industry has been shielded to some extent from economic challenges witnessed, particularly in more commercially driven markets. So I, I guess from what you're saying there is they're an important part of the fabric of society. As such, they have a privileged position, perhaps, in terms of their place amongst some of the other kind of industries players. They have that built-in funding model, as it were, and they also have that kind of uh, demand on them to be accountable to their audience in perhaps a way that other industry players don't in quite the same, in quite the same way. Now, in terms of some of the challenges they're facing, I'm guessing all of those factors have their pros and cons. Currently, what do you see as the sort of biggest challenges that the public service broadcasters are facing right now? So the first sort of main area that we've identified is obviously the changing audience dynamics and fragmentation. So we've seen PSBs face increasing competition over the last decades as viewers have more media options at their disposal. 
from private commercial subscription broadcasters, leading to an audience fragmentation and decline of audiences for public media. Of course, we're still seeing very strong levels of engagement with public media. So there's over 60% of respondents in Ampere's latest consumer survey continue to regularly engage with public media. But overall, the trend in engagement with public media for these main European broadcasters is a downward trend. The second key challenge we've identified is around uh, the funding for public service media. So although the PSMs and leading European markets receive the high, some of the highest levels of public funding in the world, this funding landscape has undergone quite a lot of challenges in recent years. And by PSM, just to clarify, you mean public service media as opposed to public service broadcasting? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So partly we've seen some of the funding models being uh, questioned. For example, the TV license fee model being abolished in France. And overall, if we look at public service media's revenue, it is in decline. Especially this is evident if we adjust these revenues for inflation and also worth noting is that at the same time, revenues invested by global streamers in the region are increasing and catching up quite quickly with PSM revenue. The third key sort of area that we've identified as challenging is the digital challenge. So the streamers in particular that we've just referred to. So as there is an increasing saturation for these sort of global streaming platforms in the native US market, they are increasingly expanding their geographic footprint. And Europe is one of their key markets, really. We have seen these streamers target subscribers through their extensive catalogs of international original productions and also acquired content, but increasingly they're equal also sort of increasingly investing in locally produced original content. So we, if we look at Netflix, for example, we forecast that this year in 23, they will spend 30% of their total original content spend on European productions. So in a nutshell, yeah, these are the three main challenges that we've identified for the public service media. Thanks, Serene. I guess you could say it's the combined effect of those that's really going to be making the sort of the future of the public service broadcaster quite a challenging one. I guess the fact that they're so beholden to public funding and, shall we say, the public policy and um, their other kind of obligations, I guess that is something which, for better or worse, is a little more out of their hands than perhaps their relationship with their own audience and the more direct ways they can engage with consumers. Would you say that's sort of fair to say that the audience kind of dynamic is something where we're most likely to see them being able to make changes in order to adapt to a, a changing market. Yes, it is probably one of the challenges that they're able to tackle more easily and more swiftly at this point. And we have already seen a number of initiatives on the sort of on the content front where they're trying to tackle this sort of audience fragmentation. Of course, there's no easy way to address these challenges, but we've seen PSMs, for example, really trying to double down on areas that are part of their essential remit and where they can really distinguish themselves from some of the competition. For example, with content, so more investments in news content and also in live events, some of the sports content and let's say more widely speaking, sort of shared national experiences to really build a strong presence in this space. 
Also, we've seen them commission slightly more youth-oriented content in recent years. There's a slight rise, for example, in some of the genres they're commissioning, such as comedy and sci-fi commissions. So really trying to target a, a younger demographic here. Equally in children's and family content, which is one of their core sort of areas and directly answers their public remit. We've also seen them really try to develop their VOD platform and offer. They're expanding their catalogs by partly tapping into the content libraries that they have already, equally developing more VOD-specific content, number of acquisitions as well. We've also seen them trying to start to premiere more uh, content on their VOD platform ahead of the release on linear channels in order to attract more audiences to their platform. This is especially the case for scripted series, where we see an increasing share of scripted series being premiered on VOD, again, trying to attract especially younger demographic, I believe, through this strategy. We also see them trying to pull more of their resources together to co-produce sort of higher budget scripted content in order to compete with some of the global streamers. Of course, now all of these strategies are effective to maintain engagement levels and to tackle some of the challenges with younger audiences, but clearly it's still also work in progress. And there's more that needs to be done for these platforms to really gain more traction as the increase in engagement with the VOD platforms is at this uh, point in time not quite sufficient to make up for the loss in linear audiences for the public service media. That's interesting. So, I mean, are they going far enough, do we think, in terms of their, let's say, rebranding of their kind of output? It's interesting. One thing I noticed in your report, and you've done it here today as well, is that reference to public service media as opposed to just public service broadcasters. What we traditionally refer to as public service broadcasters, obviously, their remit has grown hugely over the past few years. And I think that sort of rebrand that they're undergoing at the minute is very much at the heart of all of these kind of challenges. But as you're saying, to a certain extent, it has to be more than just a rebrand. You have to completely rethink your content strategy. And they are starting to do that, as you say. But to what extent? And do you think they've gone far enough to actually make that happen? I mean, yes, the term public service media seems better suited to sort of capture the direction taken by these public broadcasters as they try to become more increasingly more cross-platform content provider. And as you point out, whilst their VOD platforms are gaining more momentum, they're perhaps still a little bit too reflective of their linear channels and not distinct enough as a standalone platform for content discovery. So when we analyze the composition of by genre of the VOD catalogs of these public service media, we found that broadly they did mirror the genre mix offered across their linear channels. So we see that unscripted content, for example, makes up a similar share of between 40 and 50% overall, all the volumes of titles available across linear and VOD. We, there are obviously like some differences as well. We see more documentaries offered on the VOD platforms, a bit less of the entertainment game show formats on VOD and more of them on linear. But when we look at scripted content as well, the share of each genre is very similar on VOD and on linear. 
Yes, so there is an issue, obviously, also with them, the PSMs needing more support and funding in order to develop a more uh, distinctive VOD offer, which would allow them to further invest in some of the strategies that I referred to earlier. They'd be able to also take perhaps a bolder approach, more risk-taking approach, be able to invest in more scripted commissions, which is more likely to yield results in terms of consumer engagement perhaps have a little less renewals. And also, potentially, they could acquire more of the highly popular content in order to attract consumers to their platforms and also develop stronger marketing strategy and social media campaigns around their VOD releases. So yes, there is still it is still work in progress, but we see early signs suggest that within the funding constraints that they have, a lot of the work is sort of heading in the right direction, but they need more support to do so. It's interesting that you point out acquisition as well as a a sort of another avenue for them to go down. Obviously, it's a touchy subject when they have such a remit to produce their own content and cater to as diverse an audience as possible. But I think it's one way, as you suggest, for them to effectively use a kind of Trojan horse strategy to, say, attract younger viewers or, you know, different demographics to their platforms by acquiring, you know, outside content, which they'll be interested in. And then once they're there, um, discovery leads them to original productions and so on. So yeah, that's an interesting point. I'd like to bring Minal in here now to expand the discussion around changes in viewing habits a bit and consider it from a more global and industry-wide perspective, sort of outside of the um, public broadcasting milieu. So, Manal, I know that as part of our consumer survey, you've been looking extensively at categorizing consumers based on linear and VOD viewing behaviors. Can you tell us a little bit about that, first of all, the kind of methodology and how you've gone about that, and also what kind of insights these new segments have captured? Yeah, of course. So we've created some bespoke segmentations using our self-reported viewing data to understand how much time consumers are spending on Linear and VOD as their main viewing platform. These people have been segmented into no, low, medium and high usage categories. And then we've been able to use our time series data to unearth how the trends have changed. I think the top line finding really is that the proportion of consumers who claim to watch little to no linear TV has doubled in the past six years, which obviously poses a big threat to broadcasters. And that isn't just public service media, but it's pay TV broadcasters as well. Whereas those in the high VOD category, so that means that they're watching four or more hours of VOD content typically on each day, has actually increased ever so slightly over the past couple of years. That's interesting. So is that picture the same globally or are we seeing that differ across different territories? Are there certain territories where linear viewing is still particularly strong? Yeah, so there are definite regional differences. Uh, European markets are the most likely to engage with linear viewing. So from the analysis that we've done, we found that markets such as France, Poland, Japan, Italy and the Netherlands are the most engaged with linear platforms. And actually, what we've seen is that there's been growth with linear engagement in France, Poland and the Netherlands over the past couple of years. So it's a pretty positive story there. However, then if we switch over and we look at a market like Italy, we've seen a significant decline in linear viewing over the past few years. And this has gone hand in hand with better broadband infrastructure, which therefore allows consumers to access OTT platforms a lot more easily. 
And and how's the picture across different demographics? Because I'm sure that that's something which is interconnected with this issue of who is going to linear and, and who is going to VOD. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's no surprise that the younger audiences are the most engaged with the VOD platforms. But actually what I found quite interesting is they're still the fastest growing demographic for those digital services. Now, the main reason for this is their use of social media for video and particularly platforms like Instagram, Snap and TikTok. Now, TikTok, if we isolate that, that's been a real driver since it exploded onto the scene during the pandemic. And it was able to capitalize on the boredom of consumers and provide them with all these really funny videos in what was quite an intense time. But it's also been that platform's ability to not only keep those audiences, but extend its reach across older demographics that's been helping to drive that overall engagement with VOD platforms. And then if we have a quick look at the high linear category, unsurprisingly, again, it's the older demographics which are driving that. But when you look at some of the reasons why they're turning to linear. We'll come on to this in a little bit more detail in a second, but something that Serene mentioned is part of the reason is also live sport. So that ability to have national moments on linear TV. There's a bit of a chicken and egg situation here. Are people going to linear broadcasters because that's where sport traditionally is? Or are they are the linear broadcasters driving that sport viewing? There's a bit of back and forth there, but it shows how important sport really is to linear broadcasters and their future. It's interesting that you say as well in terms of the way in which social media platforms are really driving viewing among certain younger demographics, but are also relevant across the board. I guess there's also an argument to be made for more platforms exploiting the power of advertising on social media to draw audiences that might not necessarily usually go to that kind of linear content to their platforms through that kind of sharing of short clips and so on. Actually, in our survey, we ask about drivers for viewing. And what we find is when you start segmenting that by different demographics, for younger viewers, they are really heavily driven by memes that they see on social media or content that they see on social. So having a strong social strategy in your marketing campaign when you're creating your own content is really key just to diversify that demographic profile, like you said. Interesting. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear both your ideas, actually here on, on the sort of strategies that linear channels, you know, both public broadcasters, but also pay TV can use to engage new audiences. So social media we've already touched on, but is it a question of, as Serene suggested, acquiring a different type of content? Are there particular audience segments or genres that are being underserved on these platforms? What kinds of insights has your research pulled out, Manel, on that? Yeah. So there's a few different things to your point about genres being underserved. We had a look at the favorite genres for um, under 35s and correlated that with the catalogs of linear OTT platforms across Europe. And what we found is the genres which are most favorited by younger audiences, so things like horror and comedy, significantly under-index for the BVOD platforms as they are, or OTT platforms for the broadcasters. Whereas they're doing obviously really well on things like documentaries and generally things like dramas. So there is a real need to maybe shift some of that. But there's also a couple of other things that they could do. So the first of those is to implement some local commissioning strategies around TV shows and films to help with the supply shortage, which we've seen both as a result of competition from the SVOD players and Studio D2C platforms and the supply shortage that we're going to see in about 18 months' times as a result of some of these strikes. 
And that isn't just advice for some of the public service media, but also for the pay TV linear channels too. So we've seen Sky implement this strategy and they've got about 240 new titles in the work. And then the final thing really is more for linear broadcasters in non-English speaking markets. For them, they should really be looking to leverage the growing popularity of non-local and non-English language content by selling their popular domestic titles abroad. We've seen a lot of really high profile success stories in this area like Squid Game, Call My Agent and Dark. I'd like to bring Serene in on this as well, because I know on perhaps sort of the flip side of that, there is this increased competition from the streamers. And you mentioned in your report that part of one of the sort of most pressured challenges right now for the public service broadcasters is the fact that streamers are encroaching on what was their sort of content specialism, as it were. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is mostly geared towards kind of the older audience bases and their preferences in terms of particular genres like crime and thriller. Am I correct? Yes, absolutely. So as the streamers are seeking to expand their subscriber base in these Western European countries, they are increasingly targeting an older demographic with, for example, genres, an increase in the, the share of genres such as crime and thriller titles. Equally, uh, we see more unscripted formats being developed by the streamers, so partly directly rivaling some of the sort of core central aspects of what the public service broadcasts have been commissioning. I mean, traditionally, there's a very strong association between the crime and thriller genres provided by public service media in Europe, and we see their share of the local market really starting to decrease over the years. Equally, we have seen that obviously the, the, the public service media are not able to compete with uh, some of the sort of deep-pocketed approach to commissioning by the streamers in these kind of genres. So whereas we have very long-running yearly renewals of crime and thriller series by public service media, we have quite partly some quite exciting new series being commissioned by the streamers, which pose a challenge in terms of attracting audiences. And in terms of the younger demographic, I fully agree with what Minal was saying. We have started to see also a change in the commissioning levels, as mentioned earlier, by the public service media, with more offer of comedy and sci-fi genres trying to address this gap. But it is at quite an early stage, and we see sort of more alliances and co-productions across Europe to try to tackle this but obviously with funding constraints they are facing, it is not an easy task. It's a bit of a minefield all around, really, in terms of where you can identify that, that sort of opportunity and the specific niches you can fit into. Talking of specific niches, there was something else that I wanted to mention, Minal, that I pulled out from your report, which was a bit of an insight around high VOD viewers and their marked preference for movies. Could you talk a little bit about that, maybe? Yeah, of course. So... Within the segmentation, we can have a look to see what types of content is driving the different audiences. And actually, yeah, you're right. The high VOD segment absolutely love movies. And that's why they're turning to all these different VOD platforms, because they're being able to have those needs catered for. And what we find with those high VOD audiences is that actually they are much more likely to have a higher stacking rate. So they'll have access to a lot more services as well. So they're effectively cherry picking 
where they're going to to ensure that if they love movies, they have the widest possible range at their fingertips. Yeah, that's interesting as well. And I guess speaks to the kind of increased competition we were just talking about. Because obviously the pay TV landscape was once very much geared around the acquisition of first movie release window rights. And that's changed quite dramatically by the introduction of the streamers. In terms of that sort of, as you're saying, cherry picking from multiple different platforms, you identify in the report as well, a key opportunity around aggregation for the pay TV providers in particular, but for other providers as well. Could you talk a little bit about that and and who might stand to benefit from that kind of strategy? Yeah, absolutely. So given the fragmentation that we're seeing of OTT services at the moment, there's been an increased amount of consumer fatigue and it's been increasing over the last few years. And it's leading to audiences feeling overwhelmed by the number of services that they have access to. And there's a growing desire to want to be able to search for everything in a single place. Now, there are OTT platforms who are venturing into this space. So you've got Amazon channels, you've got Apple TV, you've got Roku channels. And what they're basically trying to come up with is a form of aggregation of different online services in a single place through which they can be accessed. So as well as the OTT side of it, you've got a lot of pay TV platforms who are doing the same thing. And actually, I genuinely think the biggest advantage there is for the pay TV platforms. Like not only does it provide them with full control over the billing relationship and allows them to have that communication with that customer, but they're also pivoting their business model to partner with OTT platforms rather than simply competing with them. And that means that they stay increasingly relevant in what is a changing digital landscape. That's interesting as well. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about direct competition in terms of content commissioning, but also this brave new world making for some uh, strange bedfellows in terms of partnerships as well. In terms of aggregation as well, the key advantage, I guess, is that kind of discovery environment, as you're saying. How can that boost audience awareness in terms of how content is positioned on the platform, the sort of marketing strategies that go wrong with that? And Serena, you'd like to bring you in on this as well, I think, because the European public service broadcasters are increasingly pushing for regulation of these kind of environments in order to prioritize and, and push local content to the fore. Yeah, absolutely. It, it brings with it a lot of challenges because to your point, who decides what content is being surfaced first? There's a lot of murky undercurrents there because are OTT platforms paying for their content to be surfaced first or is it just coming up quite naturally? Obviously, there are a lot of If you're looking at it purely from a consumer perspective, there are so many benefits. You search in a single interface, everything that hits that keyword comes up. But I can 100% see why there might be some need for regulation to figure out, to basically ensure that there is fairness across the market for ensuring that consumers genuinely do have a choice of everything they have access to rather than different platforms getting preferential treatment. Yes, I mean, from the perspective of the public service media, the sort of there's a key issue around discoverability and continuing to be prominent uh, when it comes to smart TVs in particular. So we have huge penetration of in, in some of these countries of of these new ways of accessing content, and without regulation or intervention on that level, public service media at risk of their content is at risk of being less prominent and less accessible which goes against sort of the remit and key value of these media. And obviously how this content gets promoted, the criteria behind it is currently not really in, in their controls. Device manufacturers, tech companies and 
and all these distributors, dictate service availability and recommendations, the terms of sort of monetization of a lot of this content. And we see in the UK how the government is uh, currently looking to address part of this through the draft UK media bill to sort of tighten the availability rules and ensure that public service media and especially like the BBC iPlayer can be easily found on smart TVs or set-top boxes and and streaming sticks, etc. Well, I think if there's, you know, one thing to pull out of both of your contributions here, it's that the market is to a certain extent fragmented to the point that there has to be a bit of a shift now towards a more aggregated offering from a lot of different players. And I think perhaps that will mean a lot more partnerships of the kind Manal's talking about, perhaps more co-productions of the kind that Serene mentioned earlier, a bit more working together across different industry groups and players, and just having to think a little bit more creatively about the ways in which content offers change and develop over time. But thank you both. That's been really interesting. I think that's probably all we have time for for today. So thank you very much to my guests for their time and for sharing their research with us today. We've heard from Serene about the future of the public service broadcasting space in Europe and also from Manal about the opportunity in aggregation. Both of those reports that we've discussed today are available on Ampere's website. So do get in touch if you're interested in accessing any of this research. If you haven't already done so, make sure you're subscribed to the AMP podcast as well as our weekly newsletter. And for more on Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com or get in touch by emailing info at ampereanalysis.com. That's info at ampereanalysis.com. I'm Alice Thorpe. I've been your host for today. And the producer of this episode was Rory Goodrick. We hope you enjoyed and I thank you for listening.